0: Our eighth lesson this morning is found in the second chapter of Luke, verses 8-16. through And here the shepherds go to the manger at the instruction of the angel of the Lord. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. in a manger this is the word of the Lord let's pray Almighty God as we gather this morning we do ask that you would take these words these lessons that we have read tracing your loving purposes from the creation of the world to its redemption and sending your son into the world and we ask God that you would knit these into our hearts That we would believe and trust and that we would know the true ground of hope. Lord, we ask that you would speak for your servants are listening. Amen. Do welcome you to this festival of nine lessons and carols, a tradition that stretches back in the English speaking world to the 19th century, to the late latter part of the 1800s, when in a small barn on Christmas Eve, a congregation gathered and read many of these very same lessons and sang many of these very same carols. It's a wonderful tradition to observe, but not just simply because it's a tradition but because it does take us to the very heart of the message of what God has revealed. And this morning, if you have a Bible, you may turn with me to Micah chapter 5. We are focusing on what was our fifth lesson, verses 2 through the first part of verse 5. If you ever listen to This American Life, it's episode number 291. It is about failed political hopes. There are several different stories of political failures that were somewhat flash in the pans, kind of for a hot minute they had a moment of success, and then a spectacular crash followed. My favorite story on the episode was about a man named Ty Thomas. He was the 21-year-old mayor of Gun Barrel City, Texas. Ty was an early graduate from a prestigious university, returned to his hometown of Gunbarrel City, established several very successful business ventures, began buying up properties, and then decided that he was going to run for mayor. He had a big personality, people believed in him, they thought he was going to make Gunbarrel City great again. Here he was, ready to return Peace and serenity to City Hall. That was actually the platform that he ran on. You see, the mayor and the city manager had been something of an embarrassment. They had brought shame on this little 5,000 person town in Texas. And it felt like Ty was going to make it all go away. It was going to be a new day. He was going to be able to sell Gun Barrel City. He won in a landslide. After a year, the district attorney opened an investigation into Ty. Allegations were flying all around of abuse of power. He was charged in particular with lying on his application about his place of residence. You had to reside inside the city limits of Gunbarrel City in order to be Gunbarrel City's mayor, and there was a question about that. He did what a lot of politicians who gain a great deal of popularity do, he denied the charges. But the grand jury invited him and summoned him to testify, and it was in the denials that the pressure began to build, and Ty Thomas folded. One night he found himself with a bottle of vodka and a bottle of pills, and he began to indulge in those things to take away his pains and his sorrows. Shortly thereafter, he found himself on the phone calling the police chief. He doesn't recall the conversations. He's rather candid about his experience now. But he demands that the police chief send out a unit dispatched to his house to arrest him for public drunkenness. The man explains to him, Mr. Mayor, we cannot arrest you for public drunkenness in the privacy of your home. He responded, well, I'll be out in the parking lot then. He calls six times. And of course, if you've ever made a 911 call, you know that it becomes a matter of public record. The newspaper discovered these six phone calls and had a heyday with them. These were the front page news in Gunbarrel City, Texas, for quite some time to come. And it led to Ty Thomas resigning. The great hopes of peace and serenity for City Hall were now dashed. All the fervor that had whipped up around his winning smile and his business ways was all gone. He went from the city's most popular mayor ever to the town clown. All in less than a year. (laughs) The interesting part is that we've all seen it. We've watched it over and over, time and time again. A candidate promises reform. They have a winning personality. Hope rises amongst the people, and then there's a crash. We've watched it. We've watched it on the international scene. We've watched it inside of churches. We've watched it in our own domestic politics, local and national. And it's important for us to recognize that that process, that cycle, leaves a mark. That it carves something into us. That it does something to us. It scars us it creates a fatigue and a cynicism. And these type things, when they are played out time and time again, they make it hard to muster up hope. And friends, we live in a world that is no friend of hope. There will be no shortage of cynicism. You won't find any encouragement towards hope, and you won't find any breaks towards growing cynical and pessimistic. And when you put all of this weight of a cynical and tired world, and that cynicism meets the Christian faith, what you find is it's incredibly difficult to absorb the full message of what's being relayed inside of Christianity. And why is that? It's because it's an audaciously hopeful message. And this is what we find in all of our readings this morning through this service of lessons and carols is an audaciously hopeful message encapsulated here in Micah 5. We find the promise that there will be a ruler and deliverer who would come into the world in the midst of distress and pain and anguish. And he would come and establish the peace. Listen to these words again from verse 4 and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the lord in the majesty of the name of the lord is god and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace That this was the prophetic promise this was what was being laid out for all the nations of the earth, that they were going to stream into one place to worship one God together, that they would have peace between one another, that this great ruler would establish this peace, that they would come to God to learn wisdom and righteousness. They would dwell there together with him. That the weapons of warfare we learned last week in Micah chapter 4 would be bent into plowshares, into productive things. All the billions of dollars that were put into warfare will be converted into productive, life-giving things. That no one would need to be afraid anymore. Their property would not be taken. Injustice would be removed. Sin would be purified. This was the promise This is what Christian hope looks like. And it sounds good. It is a campaign platform. It is an announcement of reform, of God returning to the world to reform it literally. And many think it just sounds too good to be true. Can we in our sophisticated and cynical and tired world, can we really believe things like this? We've seen it all, and we've heard it all, and we've experienced that hope so often only leads to disappointment. Friedrich Nietzsche, perhaps the prophet of our own culture and time, said it this way. He summed it up, hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the suffering of man, that it does you no good. All it does is make things worse. Obviously, Christians see that differently. But why do we persist in believing? Why do we hold fast to it? Why should we believe? Why do we hope? And the prophet Micah helps us to see two things about Christian hope and the reliability of Jesus. The first is this. We see that we can persist in hope. Because our hope comes from the outside. It comes from a different source. It's not related to this particular order of the world. If you look with me in verse two. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. What a strange remark. What exactly is the prophet Micah saying? If you know anything about ancient Near Eastern geography, you know that Bethlehem is a very insignificant town. The only reason we know of it is because of religious faith. It was a small village. And then it's called Fruitful, and literally the House of Bread. But it was a small waypoint on the way to Jerusalem, an insignificant place. But the prophet here points it out. And then he goes on to say, "...who are too little to be among the clans of Judah." A small, insignificant, minuscule village. That's being singled out as something significant happening there. And what was to happen was that from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Who is coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And the prophet brings up Bethlehem. And he brings up this entire context in order to bring out the promise that God made to David. We read this promise from Psalm 132, where God promises to David that one of his sons would sit upon his throne forever and ever, that his days would not end, and that his reign would go all the way to the ends of the earth. We find this in verse 4 once again, that he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace that this was the promise, that one would rule from David. And so Micah drives into this promise, citing Bethlehem, David's own home, where his family line comes from, saying that the ruler was gonna come out of there. He would be of the family of David, and he would come forth to rule. But obviously, Bethlehem is not the place that you would likely look for a ruler. It's an insignificant place. It's an unimportant place. Surely one who needs the sophistication to rule, one who could be competent and able to exercise such rule. Certainly he must come from a more sophisticated place than this. But it's an ancient promise by God. And friends, this is why we can hope. Because it's an ancient promise that comes from the outside, that refuses the world's categories, that doesn't work with the same categories that we work with. It reverses every bit of expectation that we can create. The one who would bring peace to all the nations, he would come from Bethlehem? That's what we would say. And yet a word from the outside, a word from God himself says, yes, it is through weak and insignificant things that I will establish my rule, that I will make things right. And it's important to remember David himself, the eighth son of Jesse, who was consecrated to be king of Israel by Samuel. But first Jesse brought all of his seven sons and paraded them in front of Samuel, thinking that it would be his eldest son who would be set apart. But then Samuel, listen to what he says. Are all your sons here? And then Jesse responded, there remains yet the youngest. And this had always been the story that God was working out. Through the weak and the insignificant, he was working out his promise, a promise that extended all the way back to Abraham, that the nations of the earth would be blessed through this family. And now those promises are elaborated and extended through the house of David. And he was coming as a weak one, coming forth according to an ancient promise, a promise from the outside, something that no one quite expected. Here, hiding in plain sight is the promise, and yet so easy for us to miss. And friends, it's reliable and it's trustworthy because it brings a program of reform. And it brings it in a way that we would never expect. It undoes everything that we would think would make things right. And it deserves our attention just because of that. Don't miss it. But the second thing we see from the prophet Micah, we see that the promise also carries a precedent. This great promise that God had made to David The promise that Micah says is going to then be brought to fruition. He says that Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And you see here that he mentions Judah, the tribe of Israel that was designated in Genesis chapter 49 to be the clan, the tribe that the ruler of Israel was to be brought forth from. But it's important to be brought into the story of Judah. We find the story of Judah being told in the latter part of the book of Genesis. It begins actually in chapter 37, where Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, betrays his brother Joseph. The brothers didn't like this young dreamer of dreams, and so they decided that he needed to be put to death. He needed to be removed from the scene. And so they were going to kill him, but then they said no. Judah comes up with the plan and says, let's sell him. Why should we not profit from this? This was Judah's genius to sell Joseph into the hands of slave traders, and he would go off to Egypt. Judah then is part of the ruse to trick his father Jacob into thinking that his son Joseph was dead. He was part of that elaborate lie. Then in chapter 38, we find an entire chapter devoted to Judah. It is a morally corrupt story, to say the least. He's a man of no faith. He's a man of no integrity. He doesn't keep the covenant that God had sworn with him. He has nothing to do with it. He's a complete catastrophe. That's who Judah is. And yet when you arrive in chapter 49, just a few short chapters later, God is saying that he's going to raise up a ruler from Judah. Why is that? Judah establishes a precedence for the house of David. And what happens from chapter 38 to chapter 44? It's an amazing story. Joseph, of course, goes down into Egypt. He is exiled there, away from the promised land, away from his family, but he rises in power to become the second in charge. There is a famine, and Jacob sends his sons down into Egypt to get food. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him And he sets up a trap. Joseph slides his silver cup into the bags of the youngest son. He then sends his soldiers after them as they are on their way back to the promised land. He arrests the youngest son. But in a fascinating turn of events... As the youngest son is being arrested, as he's brought in front of Joseph and accused. And Joseph says, I'm going to detain him while you go back to the promised land. And then I want you to bring your father with you. Listen very carefully to what Judah does. You can find this in Genesis 44, verses 33 to 34. Judah intercedes for his brother. And he says this. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This was the same man who willingly threw Joseph into a pit and then sold him into slavery. Came up with the plan. And now, what has he done? He has interceded. And he actually offers himself in the place of his younger brother to have compassion on his father, to step in on behalf of his younger brother. He offers himself to Joseph and he says, no, enslave me rather than this young one. And friends, this is the precedence that is set, that God delights in the weak, not the strong. He picks the eighth son, not the first. And then God delights in this family because of a sacrificial story that begins to be told. And that is why we can entrust ourselves to this great story of hope, because it's not a story about the acquisition of power for selfish gain. It's not a hope that is really a false hope and an empty one that only has the interest of the ruler in mind. That yes, he shall be our peace and yes, he shall rule over all the ends of the earth. But as Jesus says, the Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve. And he gives himself as a ransom for many. That we find him reliable, because his character is credible. He comes from the outside. He doesn't represent our sick and atrophied values of greatness. He comes in weakness and he comes in sacrifice. And that is the sure ground of Christian hope. And because Jesus will go all the way down into death and rise again from the dead, he can bring the world out of its sinful corruption and pollution and make it right, and make it new, and reform it. He can purify it to what it was always to be inside of God's intent. And so yes, there are very many reasons in our world to be filled with cynicism and suspicion, to be utterly hopeless. But friends, when it comes to the Christian view of the future, And what our God has done for us. We have an infinite variety of reasons as well to be utterly joyful, exceedingly glad, and trusting and believing that God will make good on his campaign platform. What he says, what he says the future will be, you can trust him. It's a word from the outside, and it's a word of self sacrifice. For us, let's pray. Father, we do rejoice and we give thanks. You have given us a word that comes directly from you. You've condescended and entered into our world that we can have hope that our condition and our world's brokenness and all the sadness that we endure, our sins, our failures, both on individual and corporate levels will one day be undone we long for that day build up our hope in that day keep us from cynicism and pessimism that leads to unbelief and may we be trusting you may we entrust our whole lives to you and follow after you with all that we are we pray in christ's name amen